Hey guys, welcome to the third episode and the first official interview of the Urban Roaster Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Virginia Commonwealth Roasters. Guys, VCR is my company. We roast and blend the best coffee from around the world and ship directly to coffee drinkers across the country. Check it out today, grab a bag, and let me know what you think. Link is in the episode notes, or you can head over to vcr.coffee. Also, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to help sponsor upcoming episodes, head over to theurbanroaster.com and click on the sponsor link. We've got so many quality episodes coming up, and you can be part of helping bring those to life. Thank you so much. And finally, our guest today. From working at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to Delta Force to owning his own explosives company specializing in training law enforcement personnel, my guest today has a very unique insight into the world of combat and law enforcement. Please take a listen right here on the Urban Roaster as I chat with the owner of Precision Explosives, Mr. Todd Wilbur. should be live what's going on todd not much just enjoying our good covid life gotta love that Mm -hmm. it's been a uh been a crazy couple of uh months now what six seven how long have we been locked down i'm done i i think it's like um march uh 135 yeah (laughs) exactly exactly that two weeks flattening the curve. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm glad we got that curve flattened. Exactly. So, anyway, today we are hanging out at Hogshead Cigar Lounge. Wonderful place. Great little cigar lounge here in Fredericksburg. And, um, yeah, we're going to just kind of talk shop. So, to begin with, tell me how your career came to be what it is. So now you own Precision Explosives. You do um, mainly training and different training elements as far as explosives and that kind of stuff, bomb sniffing dogs, that kind of stuff. Let's back up. How'd you get there? Mostly by accident. Um, I don't think that anybody plans at some young age that, oh, I want to make explosives and 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 uh train dogs and bomb techs i don't know maybe some people do but that was never that was never in my sights but uh i had some unique opportunities and some great mentors and um took some chances and some of them paid off some of them not so much nice so talk me through a little bit of your you were in the army right <clears throat> i was uh I was recruited into the army um, to be a sentinel at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I don't say that they came looking for me to be a tomb guard. I say that because the army sought to get a new recruit. And the only thing that interested me was the potential for being a tomb guard. And so I said, if you can get me to the old guard, then I'll do the rest. And I got extraordinarily lucky. There is a contract vehicle when you're recruited into the army as an what they call the old guard option 
and from there I got very fortunate I, very, uh, I was very fortunate to be part of an experiment to take young soldiers right out of basic training and uh, try them out at the tomb to see if they could train a sentinel better without bad habits coming from the mine companies normally it's not that not done that way so I showed up at uh, the quarters on my first day as a private E1 which means I had no rank on my collar and my relief commander barked at me where the hell's your rank I <laughs> looked down at my That's... collar and said this is all I've got sergeant <laughs> E1 is kind of starting out fresh so you yeah. you went into that fresh very is with the tomb of the unknown soldier is that a position that's normally brought in with people without rank or is that no. normally higher e, e5 e6 well it's somewhere you it's, know what's what's the norm by plan it's a it's an infantry platoon um in current in the current uh era you have basically any mos that's in the old guard can be can try out for the tomb so you can have a cook supply guy mp anybody a mechanic can try out for the tomb now once upon a time it was only infantrymen so based on its uh structure you should have uh lower enlisted folks non-ncos but you also have to have uh assistant relief commanders which would probably be a corporal or a sergeant and then you have a relief commander that will be a staff sergeant and then a sergeant first class as a the platoon sergeant. Okay. So what's how large of a team is the Tomb of the Unknown Social Soldier? By by design, it would be um, you know around thirty troops, but it, that rarely ever happens. So they're always short. Okay. Always short-handed. It's very so hard on need, your body. Yeah. So you you did that for a while, mm -hmm. and then you made it. You ended up heading in the direction of delta force mm, no I, originally i was going to do four and out and go to college and try to be uh respectable um but i thought well before i give up on this army thing let's see what else is out there and respectable's not worth it <laughs> um let's do this let's see what else is in the army besides this and um somehow or another somebody turned me on to explosive ordnance disposal there is a there was a unit at fort mcnair which is nearby Arlington National Cemetery, and I went there and talked to a few people and thought, okay, well, let's try explosives and see what happens, and went off to EOD school, and um, that was extraordinarily difficult, um, every bit as difficult as being a tomb guard, only it has to do with more academics and uh, memorization, lots of memorization, and uh, became an EOD tech. Yeah, that's, so from my understanding especially in the EOD world, you're focused more on the reverse engineering of what other people are making in explosives rather than focusing on making explosives yourself, correct? Uh, yes, it's, it's multifaceted. Uh, the EOD field is, is one where you can definitely go in a variety of different directions. Uh, ultimately, as, an, as an implied by the name, uh, ordnance disposal, is a significant part of that. Yeah. And people oftentimes forget about it, especially in, in, the, in our current situation with 20 years of, of warfare. Um, everybody thinks everything's um, based on improvised explosive devices. But in reality, they also have to consider regular ordnance. Um, 
ordinance that is damaged, ordinance that, or weapon systems that misfire, those kinds of things. So it's also blowing up stuff, tons and tons and tons of ordnance. Whether it's grenades or bomb vests or, you know, Mm -hmm. even time bombs, the stuff. All those things. You know, you you hear about the bomb vests in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. A lot of your job, from what I understand, was kind of working, figuring out, okay, how are they making these things? What are they doing? What kind of shrapnel are they using? What kind of explosives? What's going on with that? Right. So we, as a bomb tech, whether it's a, an improvised explosive device or a, uh, a piece of ordnance, you think about what is the filler, in other words, the type of explosive, and then what is the fusing type by function. So does this, does this thing go off? Does it go boom because it is dropped because I stepped on this or I touched that or that sort of thing? Okay. So you're, you're thinking about... The triggering mechanism. Triggering mechanism, exactly. Is it operated by a victim or if it's a piece of ordnance? You know, what happens if I pull this pin or can I pick it up? Do I have to approach it from a certain direction? Those sorts of things. Now, within that community, so is that community mainly relegated to the military community or, or does the EOD piece fall into law enforcement in this, in our country? That's an interesting question because uh, there are... I've always kind of wondered the way that works out. The The law enforcement community has a, uh, a school uh, run by the FBI, and the graduates from there become public safety bomb technicians. They are given some familiarization with ordnance, but largely it's based on dealing with improvised explosive device threats or disposing of explosives themselves. Um, most of the time, uh, if a civilian bomb tech encounters ordnance, they'll call the military to come provide assistance. You spend, if you think about it, you, in EOD school, you spend nine months to a year studying ordnance. Yeah. You can't just suddenly know everything about ordnance, even without... Uh, reference material in a six-week school no so not at all that that's a that's being unfair to law enforcement to to expect them to take on those things okay so law enforcement when they really need to dig into the trenches with that they have the ability to call Mm -hmm. on the military side of the eod world right and bring you guys into the for lack of a better term the citizens side of things we're rendering technical assistance i got you but uh, it's not a law enforcement action. It's simply t- technical assistance. They'll, they may take uh, ordnance item and, and uh, bring it back to a base for disposal. Or if it's too hazardous, they'll dispose of it right there. But there's a, there's a great uh, working relationship between military bomb techs and civilian bomb techs for the most part. Okay. And you spent years in the military side. Now you're on the civilian side, on the law enforcement training, that side of things. Right. So, you know, once uh, once I left uh, military life, I went to work, um, do more technical stuff out at the national laboratories. I've also worked at New Mexico Tech, studied explosives, studied, uh, done actual original research. And that led me to start sharing more and more with uh, really whomever was, was interested. But a lot of the... Uh, uh, civilian responders needed more information. And so through different programs, I started to teach more and share with them what, what I'd learned and what I other people you. 
other people had tried to emphasize. Um, with that, so you have, you've got a vast array of knowledge in the training world and in the chemical makeup world. There's, there's a lot of uneasiness in our country right now. There's a lot of stuff with different riots going on, different explosives going on, different people burning down houses, that kind of stuff. How's that changing the way you do business? Are you having to spend more time helping train those military or the uh, law enforcement agencies? Are the law enforcement agencies just going away? I mean, what we hear defund the police, we hear that kind of stuff. How does that play into what you do on the more enforcement end of things, on the training of the enforcement side of things? It's, uh, it's hurt our business some because when you talk about defunding the police and taking funds away, that means that they can't purchase things. They can't, yeah. they can't uh, uh, contract for training. So that affects us directly. Uh, in terms of preparing them for responses, we focus more on transnational threats because these are threats that they're not accustomed to. Um, people who do, do bombings in the, the, in the United States, for the most part, we have a few stellar outliers, but for the most part, they're not very good. Um, and, we like, yeah. and we like that. They stick to pipe bombs for the most part. And now with all of the uh, uh, anti-fascist movement, they use commercial fireworks. Yeah. And... So it's all stuff that's pretty readily available. That's kind of the, the way people do You know do what the explosives are. You know what right. they're using. I know we had talked one day um, offline about the way they were going about bombs in Europe using something with Kool-Aid and that smell mm-hmm. throwing off a lot of... Because a lot of what you do is creating the devices to train bomb-sniffing dogs and the bomb detection world. So I, you see that in Europe where they're using different chemicals and stuff. That's not really making it here right now, currently? Not so much. But we always have to prepare for that transnational threat because it does trickle in little by little. Little by little, yeah. And as people do things uh, and they're successful at it, then it kind of inspires others to follow their foot, footsteps. So we have to be really careful and, and make sure we keep a close eye on what those trends are and how they're communicating those sorts of things. As far as uh, canine odors, we we really uh, work hard to make sure that the explosives that we're using or synthesizing um, are absolutely as pure as possible, and that's that's our that's our big thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you're using pure ingredients, you're getting a better a better outlier so that you can pick up a wider range of the explosives from what I can. If you, if you focus on the, the, uh, cornerstone constituent of an explosive and you make that really clear to a dog as to what they're expected to find and get paid for it, get, get that reward, get all that excitement, then the dog will enthusiastically seek it out everywhere else. So if, as long as that, that picture is clear and not muddled with, other contaminants let's say or other distractors then the dog will perform a whole lot better yeah because you even mentioned like previously the touch your skin and that kind of stuff on the scent devices 
because it throws the dog off and makes the dog go for you for all intents and purposes not not go at you but it makes them look for your smell places exactly the dog's gonna cheat the the dog is a is an impatient toddler um (laughs) that wants immediate gratification and they're gonna cheat and do whatever they can to get that and if they know that your odor that you've put on something is a way to get paid then that's what they're gonna look for yeah so we gotta always work on uh making sure that human contamination isn't part of that scent picture. I got you. Cool. So let's go back to your history a little bit, because you mentioned the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, Mm -hmm. and then you were able to work within a group that we don't hear about much. We know it exists, but beyond that, it's what it should be, a ghost group called Delta Force. Right. So after... uh Becoming a bomb technician, I was much younger, much thinner, much more fit. And uh, somebody had mentioned, um, hey, every once in a while there's a, a recruiting effort to get bomb, to- bomb techs into Delta. Um, and they may come talk to you because you're pretty fit. Um, I kind of thought they were bullshitting me because I didn't really think that the unit existed. I thought it was just a Lee Marvin, Chuck Norris movie. But uh, lo and behold, it was a, a real thing, and um, I thought, well, let's let's try this out and see what happens. And I went there with no expectation of being selected, and didn't really think much about it. But I went through that process, and at the end of it, they said, you know, would like for you to come and go through training. So it was uh, another one of those I had no plan of doing this type situations, but. Here's but here op- it is. Let's go. Here's for an it. opportunity that's presenting itself. Let's let's give it a shot and see what happens. And it was a phenomenal experience. I've met absolute amazing heroes, and uh, I, I I miss it every day. I'd, I'd love to be able to go back, but I'm too old, too fat, too broken. <laughs> well, that's I mean that's part of the hard life we live is going hard and riding hard and being put up wet. Mm-hmm. But. Um, so how long were you within that team? Were you in there for a while? Or is it something where they take recruits and you're in there for a very short period of time? No, most people stay in there for the rest of their career. Um, I was only there for four years. Um, there were a number of reasons why I left, mostly because of family. One of the things that um, that the older guys were telling me is that they missed their kids' childhood. And I my uh, wife and I at the time had just had a baby at about our three-year mark or the, my three-year mark there and um, with our our operation tempo I was quickly realizing that what they were saying was absolutely right and so it was a difficult decision um, in hindsight it was probably a good decision um, but if I had stayed there I would have absolutely loved it but I felt like that was being selfish because my wife and child would never see me well and that's that's the hard part i i was lucky i didn't have the wife and kids when i was on the road full time and doing the music thing and doing the audio thing i didn't even meet my wife until after that life so she never knew me during that life um she got to go with me on one concert 
long after that where I was working promotions for it. And other than that, she knows that it existed, but that's about it. So. My wife, yeah, my wife at the time, <clears throat> she uh, didn't know what she was signing up for when I went in the Army. But uh, quickly found out that it was not like being at the tomb. It was not like being a, a bomb tech. It was being gone all the time. Yeah. So uh, a short trip was two weeks. Yeah. Many trips were months at a time. Well, but it could be two weeks. You come home for two days and they say, hey, I need you on the other side of the world. Pretty much. Did you have the same pack that you kind of traveled with or was was it kind of fit to the project that you were working on? No, you're assigned to an actual element and uh, it, it has each, each of those elements are called squadrons. Uh, each of those elements has their own personality and uh, you stick together and... And then... JSOC or whoever says, hey, this team's right for this project. Let's it, let's deploy or however that needs to work. I mean, that they they rely more on uh, the, the unit command to make that decision. to make that decision. That makes sense. Cool. So you spent your time there. Then you went out and you were out west doing more of the educational side of things. How how did that work? Because you don't have the PhD, you don't have the quote-unquote degrees that we think of, but you had the experience, you had the knowledge. How did that all work together as you were working on the educational side of things? I went first to uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory and worked in uh, nuclear weapon accident response and and uh, radiological counterterrorism, and there needed to be a closer um, relationship between the science world and the operational world. So having somebody who could kind of translate and speak both languages was sought after at the time, and I could kind of do that. I needed to get much smarter on the, the science and technological side, and working there at the lab gave me an opportunity to get mentored by some amazing uh, engineers and scientists. And so I learned more and more about uh, specifics on explosives and different weapon systems and so forth, and was able to then translate that back to users of that type of information and technology. To me, that seems a lot of times like the, like having a go-between between a mechanic and an engineer that's designing a car. Exactly. Because a lot of times I see, especially in the business field, advertising and marketing for years were two separate silos. You had a wall in between. Marketing would come up with this grandiose plan for marketing, and then they'd throw it over the wall to advertising, and advertisers would have to figure it out. Interesting. And figure out how to, how to deploy ads you know, radio ads and TV ads and newspaper and that kind of stuff to fit with this campaign that wasn't necessarily built for that. And since then, that wall's been torn down. That's that's a lot of the world that I've worked in is that product development, marketing side of things. Um, since then, that wall's been torn down where the marketeers are actually developing the ads based around the product rather than going the other way around 
and they're they're developing the products, making sure the products fit the needs that it's actually being advertised for. I see the same same situation there with you. They needed somebody to take that application in. Okay, we know how things go boom and that kind of stuff. We need, and we know the chemistry behind it, but those are two separate people. Those are two separate mindsets. You've got your grunts in the field, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. making things go boom, and you've got your guys in lab coats saying, yeah, you do this and this, and you get a reaction. So you were you were able to understand the chemistry behind it, but then how they could actually use that. Exactly. So it, it, the scientists may have some kind of uh, instrument, and um, we'll, let's just say that it, it can uh, identify substances, let's say chemicals. And they'd say, this is, our, this is the gold standard. If you use this type of instrument, the answer you're going to get uh, when you analyze the, the data is going to give you very high confidence that it is exactly what what this instrument is telling you. The guy in the field says, I can't take a desktop instrument and put that in a truck and go do something. In fact, I'd rather just be able to carry it. So can we make it small enough to fit in a backpack? Yeah. And paint it black and put some Velcro on it. And <laughs> They're uh, saying, hey, here's an MRI. Yeah. And you're going, all right. How can I fit that in my backpack and walk six miles? Well, you, you bring up a, a good example, um, portable x-ray. Yeah. So portable x-ray for a bomb technician is a, is a really big thing. We really need to be able to see into stuff. That's a really great diagnostic piece of equipment. So to take a, a, an x-ray instrument and make it robust enough, small enough, that I can put it in a backpack, jump out of an airplane, hit the ground hard and still be able to use this instrument. That's important. And a lot of work went into developing a robust field portable x-ray device. Then you have, how do I do the, how do I work the film? How do I get images that are high resolution? All those things have to be factored in as you're, as you're developing that piece of kit. And so having somebody who understands what some of the, uh, technology involves, um, or what the technology, the advantage that te- that technology can bring to the field, and also understanding how it, it's going to be used was valuable to them. Okay. So, what you were working through was basically taking those massive devices, taking the the thought processes of the lab, and applying it to ways that it could be used in the field, real life, real time, that kind of thing. It, exactly. Or. Um, you know, when you work in the laboratory setting, you're able to see all the various types of technology that, that are there. It gives you an opportunity to ad- identify things that were probably never considered for field use. Yeah. So we'll see some cool chemistry setup. Okay, well, could you make that field portable and could you make it specific for explosives? Yeah. Okay, let's try that. Let's, let's do that. Let's, mm-hmm. let's figure out how to do that. That's what I used to do. So my last five or six years in the industry, um, in the audio industry, I was working as a consultant with a bunch of PhD engineers where they were, they would be in their offices working out designs and that kind of thing. I'd be in the field working with churches and broadcast environments where they're going, 
this is what I want to do. And then I'm having to be the go-between with a bunch of PhDs going, they want it to sound this way. They want it to do this. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, and our budget is nil. Right. <laughs> so luckily, I think you had a little more budget playroom when you were doing that kind of stuff. But you were you were trying to apply something very real, but in a very controlled, sterile environment to a very uncontrolled, not sterile dirty environment Mm -hmm. and shrink it down so that it could be put out everywhere. Exactly. Were you more on the chemistry end or were you more on the product development for the actual equipment pieces, that kind of thing? Kind of both because you you have led to the other, the, the kind of, the kind of, build on each other okay so you have to understand the science part of it to then think about the engineering aspect of it to then benefit the end user i got you by the way how do you like that cigar wonderful wonderful yeah bob uh he has this knack for being able to figure out where people's palates are and head you down the right road so like a cigar chef yeah Yep, he's um, he spent years developing his craft there, and that's why this place constantly has regulars in here. Oh, it shows. Um, so today you're smoking the Perdomo Barrel Aged, and I am smoking the Black Star Line Warwich, which is a fantastic smoke. Um, a little bit beefier than that. A little bit of spice, but really, really smooth. So, I'm not sure I'm enough of a connoisseur to be able to put those words together to describe the cigar. <laughs> I, where you start is you go to something that's really spicy, so you can pick up that spice, or something really smooth. That that's going to be more on the really smooth end, and then as you spend time doing it, it's it's probably very similar to the explosives you see something blow up and to my eyes i look at it and go yeah that blew up mm-hmm. you look at it and go yeah that had this type of reaction this is what was going on this is oxygen rich yes yeah yeah i'm like a uh, paps blue ribbon beer drinker being exposed to an aged scotch at this point <laughs> well but we but it's nice we try to do that so so let's i mean with that you you spent your time in Delta Force. You got out. You spent your time in the educational side of things. Mm-hmm. Now, where we're at now, you own Precision Explosives, which is here in Fredericksburg, mainly equipping law enforcement. I mean, tell us, tell us kind of the range of what your day-to-day looks like these days on the training, on the equipment. You know, what do you do now? I mostly do whatever my wife tells me. She's the boss at home, at work. It works out well that way. I don't get in trouble very much. Um, But our business focuses on the needs of the first responder community. And first responders, whether they be military, civilian, um, we try to provide uh, training so that they can do their jobs better, but we also make products that help them to prepare themselves to do their job better. And uh, 
So on any given day, we could be preparing a presentation, doing webinars, going to conferences, conducting training, uh, or just doing production runs on on our products. On the products. Mm-hmm. Now you, I got to spend the time touring your facility and kind of seeing what you guys do. Um, when it comes to that, you were showing me this tray that had different items in it Mm -hmm. those are let's walk through kind of your product display for lack of a you know you had that that's got little scent pieces is that mainly for dogs or absolutely um naval research lab has a great scientist uh named lauren de grief silk and she has done odor work her entire career uh and both in earning her PhD and now working at Naval Research Lab, she developed something called the mixed odor delivery device. And the concept is that you can place uh, different odors, different chemicals in this device that um, holds 20 milliliter vials and allows those odors to then mix. And from there, the dog gets to, to experience that complex scent picture uh, without coming in contact with the materials and you don't make a homemade explosive so at the end of the day you don't have to worry about accidentally making a bomb right and now what do i do with this stuff yeah and you don't have to worry about the dog contaminating the the odors so it's a a brilliant device and um, she created it put it got a patent for it and we then put the right chemicals in it so her knowledge of what the dog needs needed to have what explosives needed to have the explosive components. And so that's what we did. Uh, we went through different types of th- these things are called fuel oxidizer mixtures. And we got the appropriate fuels and oxidizers based on real world incidents, uh, whether they be plots or actual bombings. And we populated the, the kit with with those. So that can orders. be changed depending on the region of the world or whatever's going on if we know something's going on in a certain part of the world that's using this this and this you can you can custom manipulate that exactly. delivery system and get it in the hands of the people that need it exactly so as a new threat emerges you know somebody starts using new chemicals or dogs are having a difficult time with a certain distractor present then we can add those things to it and then the dogs can train and become more efficient at finding exactly at that particular for. one. Right. How many how many different scents can a dog be trained to? Or once it's trained, it can pretty much you give that scent to the dog and it knows what it's doing. I mean, what what does that entail? Well, I'm not a dog guy, but I can tell you what I've what I've learned from the dog <laughs> guys. Yeah. And that is that. Uh, you know, we walk through an example, of a good friend of mine, Jim. And Jim you Walker, are a dog a, guy. I've seen those dogs that you have <laughs> at your house. I'm not a dog expert, but yeah. uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jim Lundgren, explained, he used an analogy that, that I think explains it really well. If when you were a kid, your grandmother wore a certain perfume and you walk through the perfume section at Macy's, all those different odors are out there. All those scents are there. But when you smell that one that reminds you of your grandmother, you'll recognize it. Mm-hmm. And so when the dog is imprinted 
on specific odors and the dog understands I'm going to get rewarded for indicating on this, then they, they have immediate recall for that. Okay. What we focus on is making sure that we're very specific about which odors are important. And so we, we focus on those key uh, foundational cornerstone constituents of different types of explosives that are common throughout a lot of explosives. Yeah. So if we pick out uh, one particular explosive, not to get too technical, but uh, called RDX, RDX is found in a lot of different explosives. But you don't want to necessarily train your dog on all those explosives when you can just train them on RDX. And so that's what we focus on. So they've got a, a database mm-hmm. of, I know if I smell this, this, or this, I'm going to get paid if I find that. Right, right. So and they're looking for that. And, okay. And we've identified, you know, a, a dozen or so specific odors associated with explosives, both homemade and commercial military explosives, that the dog should be able to recognize and be successful at virtually everything else. Okay. So the dog can have 12 or 15 different scents that it's truly trained on to, to delve into. We often hear handlers talk about how their dog is imprinted on, you know, 27 different odors. Okay, well, that's cool. But if we break down what is in those components, you probably only need about nine or ten. Yeah. Because there, there are a lot of redundancies. I got you. Now, are bomb dogs and drug dogs, I mean, are they trained separately? Absolutely. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very similar training, I'm sure, as far as the detection. I've got a buddy that works, um, he works here in Fredericksburg on the Drug Enforcement Task Force, or did, last time I talked to him, um, helping train the canine units there and that kind of, th- that kind of thing, is that they keep those two as separate fields of specialty for the dogs. There are a lot of similarities in terms of uh, techniques and training, that sort of thing, but the odors are different. Uh, They have different molecular weights, so they're going to carry differently, but also you don't want a narcotics dog to, to be imprinted with explosive odors because you don't the dog can't tell you what it's smelling it can't say oh it's just saying i'm smelling something and i know i'm gonna get a treat you you told me that if i smell this smell that i'm gonna get rewarded yeah that's what it's that's what the dog thinks (laughs) that's it it doesn't say oh it's just weed yeah oh no no wait a minute no it's a bomb we really need to focus on this so they keep the, the two dogs separate and also for legal reasons you can't uh, law enforcement has big challenges with establishing probable cause. So if, for example, you have uh, a dog indicate on, let's say, weapons, and you go in and do a search and you find weed. Um, That's not going to fall under that warrant. If, if, the, if, the, if the weapon is legally uh, possessed, then the weed find is not admissible is not admissible but so if you have the dog focused on just illegal drugs then if the dog indicates and you find something they're not supposed to have then that's all fair well and i think that's a discussion that's really a hot button topic right now not not necessarily with the dogs but with that separation in the warrant classifications and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. i mean we see what's going on right now with the breonna taylor case and that that whole thing 
that's opening up an entire field right now of looking at it and going, okay, what is the correct way to go about this? What's what what needs to be the consensus? And that's that's less a question of citizens and more a question of lawmakers and trainers and the law enforcement community coming together and saying, okay, this is the right way to do things. This is the wrong way to do things. And this is, this is the way you need to follow those steps. I, I think that, uh, I don't think that law enforcement can ever have too much training because you're putting a tremendous amount on their shoulders, uh, to deal with not just, you know, are you drunk, but now I have to deal with escalation of force and, you know, staying within somebody's constitutional rights. And it's unfortunate that in our information age, everybody becomes a, a virologist with COVID and everybody becomes a constitutional, uh, <laughs> a constitutional law professor. We're talking about the, the elections coming up and everybody becomes a, you know, a defense attorney when there's a, there are shots fired and somebody dies. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. We all have our specialties. I mean, you're, you're especially in the explosives realm and in the explosives world means that that's the lane you're in and you understand that and we need to really focus in into what our specialties are. I think the internet has created, like you said, a lot of experts in their own minds in fields that previous to the three minutes before they saw a post that triggered them on Facebook, they knew nothing about and they had never even heard of. Exactly. And then they become keyboard warriors and, you know, start duking it out on uh, social media. Um, that's great. Get, get, get as much information as you can, but understand that that's probably not your lane. Stay in your lane, let people have their opinions and let the people who are experts in that area do their thing. And, and the people that are experts have spent years delving into it, years learning the intricacies and the factors that we don't even see. I mean, it's like you were talking about how you couldn't pick up the flavors in the cigar necessarily because you don't smoke cigars a whole lot, but that's not what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying myself. You're enjoying yourself. That's it. And I relied on on a cigar chef to make the right selection based on what his knowledge and experience yeah. brought, uh, led him to. Yeah, I wouldn't ask you to come over and roast my coffee and blend my coffee for me. That would probably be a disaster. And you wouldn't ask me to come in there and work in the explosives for you because you probably wouldn't have a building when all was said and done. <laughs> <laughs> or you'd be missing some facial hair and fingers. Of course, I probably wouldn't have a building either. We'd burn each other's buildings down, but in different ways. Mine would be a much smaller burn, I'm sure. <laughs> well, and I think, you, I think you really hit the nail on the topic with law enforcement and training. That's, that's why this whole discussion of defund the police has scared me so much because it doesn't take away the funding for the police themselves. The police need to be in place. There need to be cops in place. What it takes is they're cutting these budgets nationwide. The money comes out of the training. The money comes out of the equipping the police to do their job correctly, safely, and reliably to keep 
themselves safe and to keep us safe. Exactly. If you don't give them that training, then you're creating a bigger hazard than if you didn't have them equipped at all. Yeah. And, and you, you, you brought up the, the Breonna Taylor uh, case, and I, I don't want to get too deep of, of uh, the p- political hotbed details, but if you just talk about firearms training in that situation, um, the, the subject fired on officers, hit one of them in the leg, they returned fire, one fired six shots, one did a mag dump, 16 rounds, and hit her, I can't remember if it was four or six times, discriminant fire that hits the intended target is the better way to go as opposed to spray and pray. Oh, absolutely. And that comes from training. And that was a heinous situation. It was, it's a horrible situation that she died. Absolutely. Um, I don't think I haven't heard anyone say it's not a big deal. It's, it's absolutely a big deal. I think as a nation, we can all agree that it's a very big deal. I think the intricacy lies in why is it a big deal and what do we really need to be looking at? Um, to me, that training, that equipping, was there a failure? I don't know. I'm, I'm not in that community. I'm not a specialist in that. I don't even... I, I can't even imagine the number of factors involved for something that horrible to happen in that fast of a time period is the, I mean, I'm not even going to go into the no knock warrants and that whole realm because that's a whole nother can of worms that neither you or I are equipped to handle Absolutely. at all. At the end of the day, though, we need to increase, not decrease the amount of training with police officers to make sure that they are not just not just treating the situation right as far as interpersonally, but that they understand how their equipment works. And if they need to take a target out at 10 yards or at 20 yards, they can do that efficiently without expending 30 rounds. Exactly. You know? And I, I wasn't there, so I don't want to armchair quarterback them, but um, the unit provides us with some really good shooting training, and I can tell you that the only way you become a better shot uh, is, is through training and shooting a lot. you got to shoot a lot and put, be put in very stressful situations and be prepared for that. And that's where I think that not defunding the police but providing more res- resources for them creates better outcomes and providing correct funding right i think that's the other thing is there is a shift and i think there needs to be a reform in just the way funding is provided so that it's allocated to that training to that methodology the it's like you mentioned and we have when i'm here at the lounge i mean there are so many law enforcement people There are so many people that spent a lot of years in military backgrounds and they understand firearms and they're constantly trying to put, you know, they're, they're constantly talking about just that safety aspect of it. The only way to be safe with a firearm is to put rounds downrange. Mm Mm-hmm. 
at the end of the day, you have to pick up the weapon. You have to know how to use it correctly, safely, effectively, efficiently. That spray and pray methodology doesn't work for anybody. Again, that's not it. I wasn't there, so I don't want to necessarily critique what had happened um, too much, but discriminant fire, accurate fire is uh, is vital. Yeah. So, so you talked about the device that you have where you can mix the different, not physically mix, but you can mix the different scents mm-hmm. for the dogs. And then you showed me that disc that you guys do. Can we talk a little bit about that and just what that entails, how that helps the law enforcement community? We developed a product called the Odor Print, and the idea was to make a pro- provide canine handlers and trainers with a, the purest possible explosive odor um, without any contaminants. But we needed to make it non-detonable and stabilized um it can't it can't blow up yeah can't blow up so when you say explosives and and sometimes we have to explain this to people uh when when you make explosives you say well if if it's not an if it can't blow up it's not an explosive well sure it is it can still be an explosive and not not blow up because there are a number of physics factors that go into engineering that product. In other words, we're taking advantage of the, the really the things that I learned out at the labs on initiation theory. An explosive has to have a certain diameter, a certain thickness, those kinds of things, and it has to receive a certain amount of energy to make it blow up. What we've done is taken those things and now broken it. So it's not thick enough. It's not... Uh, the right geometry to make it blow up, but it's still present. I got you. So it's it's like, uh, you know, if you if you put uh, you look at those perfume samplers. Yeah. They just put a little bit on a on a on a little pad, and now you can smell that. And now you can perfume, smell what perfume. it is. Right. Same kind of thing. Same okay. concept. But then we packaged it uh, using uh, aluminum to protect it, and also to not introduce new smells uh, we don't use any adhesives we don't use anything that would add to that odor so the dog is able to zero on, zero in on exactly what you you want yeah so i understand when you're doing that i actually just recently recorded a podcast that is probably by the time this is airing it's already aired on the more than clark podcast um the other one the other side of what i'm doing talking about the difference between chemical and physical change. A physical change being something like tearing a piece of paper or whatever you have there. A chemical change being something that's truly changing the, altering the element itself. So what you're doing with, with those discs is you're doing a physical change. So it's, it's changing the way the element is affixed or its physical shape but it's not changing it's not altering the element itself correct it's not changing any of the chemistry all we're doing is is suspending it in a cellulose matrix that uh, allows the odor to escape but holds it so that you don't end up with a bunch of powder in in a pouch when you're done i got you that's cool so are those the main are those the two core physical products that you guys offer 
those are the two uh, uh, main products we're partnering up with uh, Psy Canine. Um, Dr. Michelle Mon has created uh, a different type of odor delivery system called the training aid delivery device. And it's a jar that has a semi-permeable membrane on the top and it prevents liquids or powders from escaping if the jar tips over. Okay. And also uh, prevents cross-contamination. Nice. All right, we'll let them finish up real quick. I want to go back through here and listen through the, um, for the names that you're naming so that I can put those in the footnotes. <laughs> that's fine we're we're wrapping it up as we speak all right so you've got those new technologies uh we just came back from a real quick break as they were kind of running some stuff in and out so there might be a little bit of a break in just the way the conversation has tracked for the last couple of minutes but um so you've got those new technologies coming down the coming down and that's going to be another product that you're going to offer yes she uh, has a patent on that delivery system and our part in it just like with the uh, mixed odor delivery device is to provide the actual odor okay the the thing that the dog is actually smelling nice and again we'll be doing that in a, a non-detonable form so that um, you don't have to have an atf license you don't have to worry about forgetting it and leaving it someplace and then yeah. Potentially creating a problem. Both legally and... Right. A hazard. <laughs> awesome. Um, so on top of all of that, you guys have training that you do. You work with canine trainers? We work with canine trainers, uh, dog handlers, uh, bomb techs, and uh, try to give them some different insights into how explosives work, um, what the different characteristics of them are, hazards that sort of thing nice well it's been a pleasure how can people um what's the best way for people to connect with you guys if there are people in the um law enforcement communities and then you guys also work with a lot of the different places like large hotels out in vegas and orlando i'm sure and different areas of the country what's the best way for people to get a hold of you what's the best way to you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a Precision Explosives has its own Facebook page, also on Instagram. Uh, we have a website, and it's uh, pre-exp.com. And uh, we communicate with people through Facebook, email, any of those different mechanisms. Nice. Well, we'll have a link to your Facebook page as well as your website on the uh, notes for this podcast so that people can definitely get a hold of you. Todd, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I will, uh, I'll see you guys on the next one. Have a great day.
thank you for joining us today and I hope you enjoyed our chat. Don't forget to tell your friends about us and connect with us on theurbanroaster.com. If you want coffee, shoot over to vcr.coffee and if you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, don't forget to check out our page, www.urbanroaster.com. See you on the next one, guys. Cheers. I know.